Uh, go ahead and pull out your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so we are in one of the more familiar passages this morning. This passage that we've already heard twice this morning. This passage we heard read last week when we met to, together and gathered for communion. A passage that most of us have heard maybe hundreds of times, and some of us might even have memorized just by the, the sheer number of times that we've heard it read. It is a, a very familiar passage. And this message this morning is not our, our typical message. It's going to be a lot more historical, uh, ap- academic, um, not a, a normal message that you might hear here. A couple weeks ago, Jeremy used the, the illustration uh, speaking of sermons of a, a commercial flight and how they're smooth and comfortable, right? And he said well, that message wasn't a commercial flight. That was like a, a Black Hawk helicopter, right? And if we were going to use that same line of thinking and compare our message this morning to uh, a flight, it might be like we're climbing in a, a crop duster, right? It's not super exciting, not a whole lot of frills and thrills, um, staying low to the ground and taking care of business, right? Doing some, some weeding. Um, it's much more like a, a Sunday school class than a, a typical sermon. And I told, I think it was Jim this morning, that in this message I am quoting more men than I am verses, which is not a, a typical thing, right? That's not a, a good thing ordinarily. So if that becomes a status quo around here, then speak up because that's not good. So recognize that as an anomaly this morning. And uh, with that understanding, let's set our minds to, to really focus, even though it's uh, maybe a little bit more, more heady than uh, some other messages, um, and just hang with me, because it really is a, an important issue. We're talking about the different views of this passage, the different ways that people understand the Lord's table and communion. And this was a, a huge deal in the 16th century for the Reformers. It was a, a bigger deal than even justification. We talk about the, the five solas often, that um, justification was such a big deal for the Reformers. But this issue of what is communion and what are we doing and how do we handle the, the bread and the cup, what are they, what do they mean, it was right up there with justification for the Reformers. And if we look in 1 Corinthians 11 itself, we can see that our text this morning is sandwiched in between two uh, really uh, abrasive, strong-languaged warning passages about uh, dealing with the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, Paul says, I do not praise you. He's talking to the Corinthians and about their handling of the Lord's Supper. In verse 18, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, 
He talks about how one of them is gathering together hungry, another one gathers together, and they get drunk. In verse 22, he responds and he says, what, what is even happening? What's going on? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So it's a, a pretty serious issue. And next week, it's going to ramp up even another notch. He says, um, he warns about taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says that those who do that in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's quite a statement. He says that we must examine ourselves and that one who doesn't examine ourselves and who doesn't partake of this rightly eats and drinks judgment unto himself. In fact, he says that many among them, the Corinthians, were weak and sick and a number of them had died. They were sleeping. And he speaks of judgment and being disciplined by the Lord. So this is a, a very important issue. Again, one that's kind of fallen out of importance in our, our day and age. But we want to take a step back and look at the, the different understandings of what's taking place here. And so in your, your bulletins, our notes are a little bit different this morning. I have four different columns there where you can take notes on these four different views. And the first view that we're going to take a look at is the view of transubstantiation. Now, you're going to hear some big words in the message this morning. Again, hang with me. Uh, don't let me lose you. Uh, I'll try to explain them. And they, they have meanings that really are, are practical about what we're doing when we gather together for the Lord's Supper. So transubstantiation is a view of the supper that um, could be understood as a real presence. That's a, another understanding of that word, the, the real presence view of the Lord's Supper. So when Jesus says um, that this is my body, which is broken for you in verse 24, or when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, in verse 25, the transubstantiation view understands that as being the literal, the literal blood of Christ. So that's the transubstantiation view. And this view really began in the beginning of the, the second millennium, around 1080. This is when it became popular. So this don't understand this as being like the historical view of the church. This developed over time in a, a very poor history, a poor time in church history when a lot of other bad things were going on. Uh, this view is held most widely by Roman Catholics, by the Eastern Orthodox Church, and by the Episcopalian Church. Those are the churches, the, the groups and organizations of people who will hold to a transubstantiational view of the Lord's Supper, which, again, believes that the elements contain the fullness of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. All of Christ is found in this, in the transubstantiational view. So my first quote that I want to share with you is from uh, the Tridentine Creed, which took place at the Council of Trent. Um, oh, thanks. I didn't realize it was going to do that. So you might have to do that for all of them. Thanks, Walker. So uh, this quote from the Tridentine Creed says that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, that's speaking of the bread and the wine, they refer to it as the Eucharist, there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is made a co conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, which conversion the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. 
I also confess that under either kind alone, Christ is received whole and entire and true and a true sacrament. And so that last part um, that talks about the, the whole kind, under either kind, that's in reference to either uh, the bread or the cup, that in each one of those, the wholeness, the fullness of Christ's body, blood, soul, are, are found in either one of those. And the reason they had to go and, and add that line there is because at, in large parts of church history, it became the practice that only the priest would partake of the cup, that only the bread was for the, the typical congregant, for the layman. Um, and the cup was reserved only for the priest. He would take that on behalf of the congregation. So they had to specify that uh, the, the fullness of Christ is found in either kind, the bread or the cup. And they had a, a true understanding of the, the Trinity. They had a good Christology. They understood that Jesus was uh, the Father. It, not the Father. Wow, that was bad. Uh, they understood that Jesus is God, that he's not the Father. Um, and that's a, a view that they still hold today. And understanding that Jesus is God, they took this uh, very seriously. Again, much more seriously than we, we take it today. It was a, a big issue back then. And unlike the way that we approach theology today, it wasn't uh, bad for them to, to disagree. They weren't quiet about their disagreements with other people and their other beliefs. So listen to this quote from Canon 1 of the Council of Trent. Um, again, defending the transubstantiational view. It says, if anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only there as in a sign or in a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. Now that word anathema is a, a strong word that we don't typically use today, but he's saying let them be damned. They are not a part of the church. They are not believers. They are not in Christ if they don't think that Jesus is fully dwelling in the, the bread and the cup. So they, again, took this pretty strongly, and they weren't mincing words about where they stood and their position on the issue. And this uh, canon isn't something that would normally be mentioned in uh, an ecumenical type discussion, right, where everybody's trying to be brought together, uh, uh, evangelicals and Catholics t together type of conversation, which is becoming more and more popular, because this really strikes at the division that exists between the doctrines. It's a doctrine that um, they have understood historically to be anathematized, to be a damning doctrine if it's not understood rightly and correctly. Um, in verse 24 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 11:24, when it says that Jesus had given thanks, that word therefore for given thanks is eucharisteo, eucharisteo, um, and that's where they get their their term eucharist from to give thanks, and so they don't believe that the the bread and the wine are fully the the blood and body of Christ, until it is actually consecrated by a priest. So this act of consecration and them giving thanks in a similar manner to how Christ gave thanks is the point at which it transforms and becomes the body and blood of Christ when it is truly and really transformed 
substantially changed in, in substance, not just uh, a symbol. This uh, word and this, I guess, idea of transubstantiation is really borrowed from Aristotle and his understanding of how the, the mechanics of things worked. And in Aristotelian philosophy, uh, they would take and separate the, um, the essence of a thing, the substance of a thing, from what they would call the accidents of something. And so if you look at the substance of something, that's talking about what it really is, um, its essence, the, the makeup of a thing, whereas what they would call the, the accidents or um, just the, the outward parts uh, referred to how something appeared, its look or taste or feel. It really dealt more with the, the cosmetics of a thing rather than what the thing is itself. And so in the transubstantiational view, they thought that the bread in what it was after it was consecrated, indeed the body and the blood of Christ, but from any outward appearance, it would still appear to be uh, just bread and just wine. It doesn't taste any different, doesn't feel any different. You put it under a microscope, and you're not going to see anything different from what you would find when you get some bread off of the grocery store and put that under a microscope. So uh, the, the word transubstantiation has this prefix on it, trans, which means to change, right? We're familiar with that in our everyday language, to transition from something. Um, to transpose music is to change something from one key to another. To transform something, it means to change. And then to add that uh, suffix of substance on it um, means that the, the substance, what the actual essence of these elements are, is changing in a transubstantiational view. And the the biggest issue that I have and we should have with this view is that it is understood to be propitiatory in nature. That it's understood that when somebody takes partakes of the bread and the cup, that they are actually partaking of Christ. And so what he is doing is he, Christ, is being a, a mediator for our sins, that our sins are being paid for, that Christ is atoning for our sins in the taking of the supper. And that, again helps us to maybe understand why this was taken as, as such a big deal, especially in relation with all this talk and reform around the idea of justification of what does it mean to be declared righteous by God. Well, if the, the partaking of communion has any effect on whether or not we are justified, then that elevates this issue of communion. Again, in the Council of Trent, the first decree in chapter 5, it said... Um, wherefore, there is no room left for doubt that all the faithful in Christ may, according to the custom ever received in the Catholic Church, render in veneration the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God, to this holy sacrament, this most holy sacrament. So Latria is a, a form of worship that was reserved for God alone. It's the highest, most supreme form of worship. And the, the Catholic Church has come out in this council and said, that form of worship is to be that is reserved for God alone is to be applied to the sacrament. And so even today, uh, you can go into a, a church, one of these 
Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Episcopalian churches, and you can see that there are still many people who will go and they will genuflect, or they will bow down towards the, the communion table. And with, they'll do that with the understanding that that is Jesus. And again, they have a, a high view of Jesus, a high Christology. They think Jesus is God, and so they want to honor him, they want to worship him, um, but there are some some really different implications that that's going to have if you're bowing down to the bread and the juice before you partake of it, right? Um, and perhaps as we're, we're talking through this and we're exploring this, you are analyzing different things in your mind and you are trying to work this through your, your Christian worldview. Hopefully that's what you're doing. And considering the issues that you might find with this approach, with this view of what the communion is. And a common retort is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is uh, a good place to go when you're talking to somebody who uh, doesn't have the best understanding of Christ's sacrifice and, and what it is that was taking place in Christ's sacrifice. But in Hebrews 10 verse 10, it says that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jumping down to verse 12, it says that having offered one sacrifice for sin, for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in verse 14, following the same line of thinking, that for by one offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So that would be uh, a typical response that you or I might come up with, saying, well, Christ offered his body once for all. It was already done. It was already paid for. He offered it once for all time. And I would consider that to be a, an adequate response. I just want to share with you how a proponent of transubstantiation might respond to that, how they might understand that. Uh, they might retort by saying that it's not a repeated sacrifice. Jesus isn't offering himself over and over again, but it is a, represent, a representing of his original sacrifice. Uh, that would be the, the response that you would get. It's not him re-sacrificing himself, but it's a representation of the original sacrifice. Um, However, if that were the case, then we wouldn't expect there to be any, uh, any weight in that, right? Our sins wouldn't be paid for when that's happening. Uh, that has taken place once for all. Uh, another retort that they might have is that they are just believing in the God of miracles, right? We believe in the miracles that we read in the gospel, and they think, well, miracles are still going on today, so there's no reason why this couldn't actually be the body and the blood of Christ. Um, they would also say, all they're doing is taking a literal understanding of the text. Jesus said, this is my, my body, right? Talking about the bread. Held up the bread and said, this is my body. Held up the cup and said, this is my blood. All they're doing is understanding the text literally. Um, I think those are some decent responses that you and I should be working through in our mind. How would we understand those responses? It's, it's just a miracle, right? We're believers in miracles. We are believers in a, a literal hermeneutic to understand the Bible literally. And what's really ironic about this is that um, the, the following view, the view that's opposed most drastically to this understanding uh, does base itself on a, a literal interpretation of, of Scripture. And so in your, your notes, if you're looking at your notes, I'm going to jump from the first view of transubstantiation all the way over to the other end of the spectrum. And I want to talk briefly about the remembrance view, the memorial view that says that Jesus is not in the bread, Jesus is not in the wine. What we're doing is we're coming here to 
remember what he is doing. And this view was popularized by Ulrich Zwingli. He was a, a Swiss reformer, um, Zwingli, Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. Um, and he um, was really influential in, in fighting, up, fighting back against this idea of transubstantiation. And this view is held most broadly today by Baptists, who, again, they're the ones who say, we want to understand the text literally. And so that's why it's important that um, we, we know what is the text saying and how does that apply to the actual elements. And Zwingli, he had an illustration. He would compare what's going on in communion to... Um, to a, a wedding ring, and I actually have my wedding ring in my pocket, not on my finger. Go figure, right? Um, I take off my wedding ring whenever I play this box drum, because if I don't, it taps against the wood, and it, it doesn't work right. So each Sunday, I'll, I'll take that off, and sometimes it's not until Sunday night that I actually put it on. But when I take it off, I don't become unwed to my wife, right? I'm still married, even though I don't have the wedding ring on. The wedding ring is just a, a picture, it's an image, a symbol of the fact that I'm married. I take it off and I set it down and one of the kids comes and puts it on, they're not married to my wife, right? I am married to my wife. This is just a, a symbol, a picture of that. And Zwingli would use uh, such an illustration to point to the fact that what we are doing in taking, partaking of the bread and the cup is simply remembering what Christ has done. It's a, a picture, a symbol of what he has done for us. Uh, he is not in the elements. Um... This is, is my personal view. I hold to the, the memorial view or the remembrance view. This is the, the view of our church that what we are doing when we are here partaking in communion is we are remembering what Christ has done for us. And we will come back to that in a moment. But um, just so you know, if you have a, a slightly different view Personally, we're not going to, to kick you out. We're not going to anathematize you, right, and say that we can't fellowship with you. However, um, remember that back in this day, this was a very serious situation, and um, that word was used quite often. So let me read for you from Canon 8 of the Council of Trent. Um, they said that if anyone saith that Christ, given in the Eucharist, is eaten spiritually only and not also sacramentally and really, let him be anathema. So lots of strong words are being thrown around. Lots of jabs and punches are being taken. Um, this was a, a very serious deal. And there were harsh divisions that were drawn over the understanding of what is actually taking place in the communion table. Uh, moving on from there for now, we'll come back to the memorial view. But looking at uh, the, the third view I want to look at is consubstantiation consubstantiation. And you'll notice that same uh, suffix, substantiation, dealing with the substance. What is the substance of the bread and the wine? But the prefix there, con, means with. And, and we'll get into that momentarily. This view is held most uh, broadly by the Lutherans, although there are some Anglicans and Episcopalians that will hold to this view as well. But it was put forth by Martin Luther and therefore, it is held now most commonly by Lutherans. And I do want to say that they don't like that word consubstantiation. 
um, they don't embrace that. They would rather refer to it as uh, sacramental union is how they would refer to it, sacramental union. But whenever I say consubstantiation, that's what I'm referring to, this view that Luther held and is held uh, by Lutherans today. And <clears throat> this view would say that the bread and the wine remain conjointly with Christ, that it's not a, a change, a transferring of the bread and the wine into Jesus' body and blood, but it's both the bread and the wine and his body and his blood. Um, and this was the view that is, I guess it is still the view that is most closely associated with transubstantiation, but there are still uh, slight yet drastic differences between the two views. And it caused all kinds of division back in the day, and it's still causing division. Uh, Martin Luther, he took issue with the language and with the fact that the elements were no longer uh, food in, in essence because he said that the text in the same sense that it says this is my body and this is my blood it also refers to it as bread and wine so he said no it can't just be a change it can't be one it has to be both so that's kind of a summary of the trend consubstantiational view that it's both and not either or uh, Another quote from Luther's larger catechism. He asked the question, what is the sacrament of the altar? And he answered it by saying, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in and under the bread and wine, which we Christians are commanded by the word of Christ to eat and to drink. And as we have said of baptism, that it is not simple water. So here we say of the sacrament in, that the sacrament is bread and wine, but not mere bread and wine, such as are ordinarily served at the table, but bread and wine comprehended in and connected with the word of God. So again, I, I'm sure that I might be losing some people, but <laughs> um, that's how, how he described it. And he did have a, a difficult time articulating it. Um, and a lot of people had lots of questions. Well, what do you mean? Um, and he it was kind of boiled down to uh, those three words that uh, Christ is in, with, and, and under the, the bread and the wine. That's how I would say it. He is in, with, and under. Um, yeah, so <laughs> write that in your notes. <laughs> Their view is in, with, and under. Christ is in, with, and under the, the elements. And um, he would, not he would, but other people have used the illustration of a sponge, how a sponge soaks up water, um, it doesn't become the water, it's both the sponge and the water, so maybe that'll kind of help you with their understanding of consubstantiation. The water is in, with, and under the sponge, just as Christ is in, with, and under the elements. Um, while Luther and Zwingli, remember Zwingli was the one who uh, held to the memorial view, Luther holds to consubstantiation, they both disagreed with Rome, with the church. They didn't think that it became the body and blood of Christ. But they disagreed pretty strongly with one another as well. And uh, they were living with one another. They were both really influential in the Reformation. And so Martin Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, he thought, okay, well, we have to, we have to get this settled. We have to get together so that we can have unity within the church. And so he brought them together in 1530 at what's called the, the Marburg Colloquy. I think you guys have that in your notes. The Marburg Colloquy was where they got together and they had this, this council, this meeting of sorts in this region in Germany that's called Marburg. 
And at this little council, this colloquy, they had 15 points that they were trying to work through so they could come to agreement on. There were slight disagreements on 15 areas of doctrine. And they were able to finagle the wording and agree on 14 out of the 15 of the points, which was pretty good. But they got to this point of what is communion, and they disagreed pretty, pretty harshly. And there are crazy stories about everything that went down at the colloquy, um, saying that Martin Luther took off his shoe and he was slamming it down on his desk on the table, and he was yelling out in, in Latin, this is my body. This is my body. That's what Jesus said. This is my body. Uh, Hocus corpus meum, slamming it down on the table. Other people said that he took out a knife and he carved into the table. Hocus corpus meum, because he was so adequate and so um, disturbed by the fact that he would say, that Zwingli would come and say, well, this isn't the actual body and blood of Christ. And Luther would point to this text, and he would say, well, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is my body. And so he was shouting and screaming and slamming shoes and carving into desks because he was so upset with Zwingli's view. In fact, he said that Zwingli was worse than the Pope and the Papist in his view of communion. He said that Zwingli is seven times worse than the Papist because he has taken Christ completely out of the elements. And so he didn't agree either with Rome or with Zwingli, but he certainly didn't agree with Zwingli. And while Zwingli was um, anathematized almost by Luther, right? Uh, and Zwingli, by the way, apparently he left this, this meeting, this Marburg colloquy in, in tears. He was really upset by the fact that they couldn't come to an agreement. They couldn't have this unity um, amongst the, the reformers, amongst the Protestants, um, and from what we're told in history, Martin Luther didn't have that same affection towards Zwingli. Again, slamming shoes, carving into desks, and he had some, some words for him later on. <laughs> and Luther didn't have the best mouth. So um, there was beef between the two, right? Tension between Zwingli and Luther. And so Zwingli, he also hit on some practical issues with this consubstantiational view that Jesus is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. And he would ask, well, what, what happens to these elements after consecration? When the priest or whoever prays over this, he gives that, that thanksgiving, and this actually becomes Jesus. What takes place from that point on? Um, there was a story that was told about Martin Luther where a woman spilled some of the wine onto her dress and the surrounding upholstery. And again, having a high view of Christ and having an understanding that that wine actually becomes Jesus, um, what do you do with that? When Jesus is spilt on a dress and on the upholstery, well, Martin Luther took her, her dress and upholstery and he burned it so as to uh, preserve the, uh, the glory of Christ. So what happens after the, the consecration of these things? Another practical issue is, well, what happens after the consumption of these things? Is Jesus digested and uh, eliminated from our body just like any other food or drink that, that we partake of? And he wasn't bringing this up as a, a slam or a joke. He wasn't trying to be facetious, but he was really bringing this up as an issue. Um, what, what takes place? If, if this is Jesus and we're taking him into our body, then how does that affect uh, that, that process? Um, he died on the cross, right? Not in our gut, not in our, 
our intestinal tract. Um, he also would ask, well, what about those who, who actually partake of this? That was a, a big discussion in this time. If somebody isn't in Christ and they partake of Christ, the body and the blood, do they somehow become in Christ? Or is it not efficacious for them if they are not a believer? Um, what about the very first time when Jesus presented this doctrine? Was Judas Iscariot, he was there. Was he partaking of Christ uh, in the same sense that Peter was partaking of Christ? And, and how was that actually done? If Jesus was still there, how was he able to offer up his body and his blood? So Zwingli was offering some, some real tough questions to Luther. Um, they were definitely fighting one with another. There was real beef there. And Luther, along with the Catholics, with the Roman Catholics, he would say that we really do receive the body of Jesus in our mouths when we are taking of the, the Lord. And so... Um, that, that comes with some, some pretty big, pretty real issues. We know of, of Martin Luther as this great Protestant reformer. That's how we, we remember him, and, and he was. But I think we also have to think back and remember that before he was a Protestant reformer, he was a Catholic monk. He had grown up in this system of transubstantiation. He had um, been taught in all the ways of the Roman Catholic Church, thinking that this is truly the body and the blood of Christ, that it does have... Uh, a propitiatory effect to it, that we are forgiven of our sins when we are partaking of this. And Luther carried some of that um, understanding into his, his own doctrine, his own theology, even after uh, he reformed against Rome. And so I want to read to you, once again, from Luther's larger catechism, um, this quote, which says, that now this is plain and clear from the words, this is my body and blood given and shed for you for the remission of sins. Briefly, that is as much as to say, for this reason we obtain forgiveness of sins. Why so? Because the words stand here and give us this. For on the account he bids me eat and drink, that it may be my own and may benefit me as a sure pledge and token, yea, the very same treasure that is appointed for me against my sins, death, and every calamity. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty bad quote from Martin Luther to say that we are forgiven of our sins by the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And, and I want to be fair to him. Um, he, he follows that up with a, a less bad quote that makes it sound a little bit better uh, just a couple paragraphs after that where he says but here our wise spirits contort themselves with their great art and wisdom crying out and bawling how can bread and wine forgive sins or strengthen faith although they hear and know that we do not say this of bread and wine because in itself bread is bread but as such bread and wine as it is the body and the blood of Christ and has the words attached to it that we say is verily the treasure and nothing else through which such forgiveness is obtained. Now the body of Christ can never be an unfruitful, vain thing that affects or profits nothing. So Luther's trying to work all this out, right? Um, and, and you can tell that. Again, I think we can be gracious to Luther realizing that he's come up out of transubstantiation. But uh, he said some, some pretty bad things in his larger catechism, for sure. 
And while it's difficult to uh, give a, a comprehensive definition of consubstantiation, uh, Jordan B. Cooper, who's like the, the leading uh, modern theologian on this, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper, um, he affirmed that the bread and the wine are in the body and the blood, or the body and the blood of Christ are in the bread and the wine. And he said that it is possible for two things, uh, for something to be two things at once. Um, so he thinks it can be both the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ. And uh, to the, the credit of this view, to the credit of uh, consubstantiation and, and Luther, one commendable thing that I can say about this is that they don't have a problem embracing the mystery of this. That there's a, a mystery to it that goes beyond what we can explain. And in some sense, I think we can say that about uh, many of our practices. When we pray, we are entering into the throne room of God. That's how Scripture defines prayer. And I don't know what that means, to enter into the throne room of God. That's certainly a, a mysterious thing, right? And when we gather corporately together to, to sing praises, to worship God, that's, there's something different than when we're singing in the shower, right? We are corporately gathered as the church. Um, when angels are talked about, spoken of as rejoicing over the, the justification of even one sinner. I don't, I don't know what that means. That's mysterious to me. It holds a, a form of, of mystery. And in the same way that the, the Holy Spirit groans when, when we are, are praying, there are just certain mysterious aspects of the faith that, that we don't know. And Luther applies that same mystery to the, the Lord's table. And I think to some degree we have to stand with him in that and say, that there is a, an aspect that we don't fully understand. But uh, that is the, the view of consubstantiation. And just as the second and third views that were, uh, they were put forth, I guess, by Zwingli and Luther, these two reformers, the fourth view that I want to look at, I think it's the third in, in your list, is uh, the view of, uh, it's called the, the reform view, also put forth by a reformer. It was initially started by, by John Calvin and added to by, by these other reformers. But um, this view, the reform view, is held most widely by Presbyterians, by Reformed Baptists, um, those who follow closely after John Calvin and, and his followers. And uh, remember that these reformers, they were called the reformers because they were reforming their doctrine and their understanding of church uh, away from and against Rome. So they disagreed with Rome, so they reformed against that. And so just as Rome was taking all these, these jabs at um, these different people who had these different beliefs, the reformers jumped right on board and they, they did the same thing. So this language in this next quote is um, pretty, pretty shocking as well. But again, they're, they're getting it out there, right? They're not hiding behind uh, these quiet little niceties there. They're telling it out how it is. So in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, it says that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, so they call out the actual phrase, they say by consecration of a priest or by any other means is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and to reason, overthroweth the nature of the ordinance, and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. 
So that's, that's hitting pretty hard, right? What you guys are doing is a gross idolatry. Um, it doesn't even make sense. Not only does Scripture, it's just illogical is what they're saying. Um, they're, they're hitting pretty hard. But what is it that uh, the Reformed view actually holds? What do they believe? If they don't believe in transubstantiation, they don't believe in consubstantiation, what does the Reformed view hold to? Um, in the Westminster Confession, Westminster Confession and London ba Baptist Confession are, are really identical. Um, but in Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 29, it says that worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements of this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, in, with, or under the bread and the wine. There they're calling out consubstantiation, Luther's view. Yet as really, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So when it speaks of uh, carnally or corporally, it uses that phrase twice. It's talking about the flesh and the body. He's saying um, we don't think that the, the flesh and the body are, are literally in the bread, but they say that Christ is spiritually in the bread and the cup. And when we, by faith, take, or worthy receivers come together and by faith partake of the elements, that we aren't physically partaking of the body and the blood of Christ, but we are spiritually partaking of the body and blood of Christ, that he is spiritually within the elements. Um, this... Uh, there's a, a phrase that they use that uh, these sacraments carry us up to Christ. Um, and they'll often say when they're administering the elements that Christ is offered to you. They'll hand somebody the, the bread and the wine, say, or juice, whatever it might be, and say, Christ is offered to you, Christ is offered to you. So he's not physically in there, but in a, a spiritual sense. Christ is in the elements, in the Reformed view. And while Calvin would admit that the finite cannot contain the infinite, which was a, a common phrase in the day. This is finite bread. This is finite, uh, a finite cup, right? And it cannot contain the infinite Christ. Uh, he did uh, make a, a distinction about the presence of God and say that God could be especially present in these things. And he would point to Scripture and say, just as God was... He was present in a special way in the burning bush when he met with Moses. He's present in these things. Or when he met Moses face-to-face -face on the mountain. Um, or in the, the tabernacle. God dwelt there in a, a special, unique way, right? Or the Ark of the Covenant. There was a special presence that was there. And he'll apply that, that same understanding to the, the bread and the cup of communion. He will call this particular connection or peculiar presence. And uh, that's not to, to take away or to draw away from the omnipresence of God, that God is present everywhere, but they would say that in some special way, he is present within these elements. And in, in good fashion with their, their common practice, he, Calvin, took a jab at the memorialist view by saying that it was not just another empty ritual. And so 
Um, he wanted to, to elevate the practice of communion. This isn't just another empty ritual, but Jesus is present within this communion meal in, in some special way. And um, kind of shifting back to the, the memorial view a little bit and filling that in a little bit more, uh, the memorial view would say, well, this isn't just an, an intellectual uh, thing that we're doing. We're not just remembering facts and, and things about who Jesus was and what he was doing. We are truly communing with Christ when we come together for communion. We are truly engaging relationally with the, the one holy God of the universe when we are coming together for communion. However, I would say that that's not just limited to this act of communion, but when we come together for prayer, we are communing, we are meeting with and engaging with the God of the universe. When we come together for corporate worship, we are engaging with the God of the universe for, through uh, preaching and teaching. We are engaging with God in the same sense that we are doing so when we come together for communion. So um, that doesn't mean that we aren't um, meeting God when we come together in communion, but the memorial view would reject the notion that we are ingesting Christ in this process, either spiritually or physically, that we are not partaking of the, the body and the blood of Christ, again, spiritually or physically. In John chapter 6, I want to look at John chapter 6 real quick as we get ready to, to wrap up. Uh, John 6 um, identifies Jesus as the bread of life or as the, the bread that came down from heaven, um, at least seven times in that chapter, talking about how he is the bread of life. In verse 51 of John 6, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so again, if you just take a, a wooden understanding, a very rigid understanding, literal reading of that text, then you would come away with the same thought that was John 6.51, the same thought that Jesus is um, to be fed upon, just as he is the bread of life. And we don't want to take that, that rigid of a of view, that rigid of an understanding of that text, because all throughout that chapter, we see that this concept of eating Christ, Christ was trying to Shatter, 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 rattle them, right? Shake them, shake and rattle them uh, and get their attention and say something that was really kind of out there and would perk up their ears. And he was saying, you need to partake of, of me. You need to be identified with me. And throughout that chapter, eight times we read the word belief, um, that he was equating this idea, this imagery of eating the, the bread of Christ with this idea of belief to uh, trust in him to be identified with him. Uh, verse 35 makes this pretty clear. So John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And Jesus was using this language again to, to make a, a very pointed point. He was trying to get something across to them, and he uses similar language throughout the rest of the uh, the I am statements that we shouldn't take in a, a literal sense, not in a wooden literal sense, but we should interpret based on the context of that passage. He says later in John 15, I am the vine. And we don't 
consider him to be a, a literal vine, right? He's trying to make a point saying that we get our strength from him. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Well, we don't think that he's like rising in the east and setting in the west, right? We think that he is shining light on the world, that he had a, a meaning, a purpose in saying that. In uh, John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And we don't think he is a, a literal wooden door. He is using a, a figure of speech in the way that he is speaking. Uh, hopefully you can see in, in your outline that the two views on, on your left, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, they are, they're pretty similar, right? There are some intricate intricacies that, that distinguish the two, but they both think that they're taking of the physical bread or the physical body and blood of Christ. Whereas the two views on the right side, the reform view and the memorial view, don't take that understanding. And they think this is not the, the bread and the body of Christ. While again, there are, are distinctions and uh, differences between the two. And John, one of John Calvin's students, uh, Theodore Beza, he said that just because something is on, it's not a... Uh, maybe I should read my quote instead of trying to paraphrase it. He says, the middle ground is not always right. And I think we have that, that perception, that mindset that, well, if something's on one extreme or the other extreme, then those can't be right. And he said, that's, even though that seems to be friendly, that seems to have some wisdom and logic in it, um, just because something is the middle ground, that also doesn't mean that it's right. And it's kind of ironic that we're looking at him as being in the middle ground rather than on the outskirts, but I'll use that quote nonetheless. Um, just because something isn't the middle ground, or is the middle ground, doesn't mean that it's always right. Um, and both the, the Reformed view and the, the memorial view, where we stand at this church, they understand that Jesus to be using a figure of speech here when he is saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Because those are words in Scripture, right? We have to deal with those. We have to figure out, well, what is he saying when he's saying that? Um, just as all the, the authors of Scripture would use figures of speech as they wrote, um, we're pretty familiar with a, a simile as a figure of speech, right? That um, it is when somebody is using a word like or as to make a comparison in Scripture. We see this several times in, in Matthew. Matthew 23 Jesus is talking to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says that you are like whitewashed tombs. He didn't think they were literally whitewashed tombs, right? He thought they were like it. Uh, chapter 13, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16 of Matthew says that the Spirit of God was descending as a dove. We don't think that the Holy Spirit is a dove, but he was descending in a fashion that was similar to how a dove might descend, right? So that's a, a use of figure of speech. Well, in the same sense, we think that here... Uh, there's a, a figure of speech that is being employed that's being used. Jesus isn't saying, this bread is going to be literally my flesh. Um, and again, I think we can get a, a good picture of that in looking at the first supper, because he was there in the flesh, handing out these elements, saying that, right? Um, so this figure of speech that he was using is called a metonymy, a met, or metonymy, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. -Y. I put it in your notes, metonymy. And it's a figure of speech that typifies or replaces a word or a concept with another word that is, a close, that is closely associated with it. So it replaces a word or a concept with a, another word that's closely associated with it. Uh, it's a, a stand-in or 
uh, a picture of something else. And a common metonymy that is used to, to illustrate this is the pen is mightier than the sword. And this is common because we find two metonymies in this short little phrase that we are all somewhat familiar with, right? And when that phrase talks about the pen, it's not talking about a literal pen. It's talking about any kind of written communication. Somebody taking and, and writing out a letter or writing out a note or a, a treatise or um, a manifesto or something, that that is mightier than the sword. And it doesn't even have to be done with a literal pen or literal ink, but you can get on a computer and you can type out some kind of communication. And when it's talking about a sword, it's not talking about a, a literal sword. Obviously, we all know the pen isn't mightier than the literal sword. That's what makes this phrase so unique and, and different, right? Because of the use of these two metonymies. It's talking about brute force when it's talking about a sword. It could be talking about a sword, about a gun, about bombs, about a tank, about boxing gloves, right? And it's saying that this rent communication has more influence than this brute force. And in the same way, we should understand what Jesus is saying here in 1 Corinthians 11 as Jesus uh, presenting before us a metonymy that is meant to help us to recall his body and his blood, to remember him and what it was that he did for us in uh, what he was about to do. This was, for the first time, mentioned the night that he was betrayed. Before he was about to go to the cross, he established this new covenant with uh, his disciples and with us by extension. Um, let's see, I'm looking at the, the wrong page. So uh, when he did this, it was a, a big deal because he was going back and he was looking at hundreds of years of Jewish, his, Jewish history and he was saying, that's, that's going to change. That's different, right? This was done on the night of the Passover and Jesus drawing on the imagery of the Passover of these people who had been brought up out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God who had for thousands of years sacrificed animals. They were very familiar with this idea, this imagery of blood and death and substitutionary sacrifice, this animal taking the place of them and their sins. And Jesus was saying, instead of doing that in remembrance of how God has brought you up out of Egypt, instead of doing that in remembrance of the sins that these animals are incapable of doing or incapable of actually taking away from you, they can just cover them for a time. You are to do this in remembrance of me. When he, Jesus, offered this, uh, this new ordinance for us to, to take and to remember, he did it with a purpose statement in mind. He says, you do this for a reason, for a purpose. You do it in remembrance of me. I want to read to you from Hebrews 10. Again, Hebrews 10 is a, a good place to go for these types of discussions. But in verses 3 and 4, we read that uh, in the sacrifices, that is the Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is drawing their attention to, that now Jesus is here. He is a better sacrifice than those Old Testament sacrifices. They were just a picture. They were a shadow, a type of Jesus. And now Jesus is the substance. He is here, and he is the one who is to take away our sins. He is a great high priest who doesn't have to go in year after year and offer a sacrifice first for himself and then for others. He offered one sacrifice once for all, the just for the unjust, and he did so 
with this ordinance in mind so that we might come to this on a regular basis and remember what it is that he has done for us. And he uses this imagery, these metonymies of bread and wine or juice so that we might declare that rather than putting our our remembrance in the animals who are unable to offer that sacrifice, we can put our remembrance in the Christ who is good and he is righteous and he is worthy uh, to be that sacrifice, to be that substitution for us and on our behalf. When we partake of communion, we aren't seeking to receive any kind of blessing from God. We certainly aren't seeking to receive any kind of salvation from God. We reject that notion altogether. Uh, What we are doing is we are remembering what it is that Christ has done for us, not seeking to earn favor with him, but realizing that he is the one who has taken our place. He is our substitute. And we are remembering that great sacrifice that he offered for us. And I want to, to finish by reading to you guys one last quote Uh, my favorite quote out of all the ones that I've shared with you. And this is a a quote from a 10-year-old, my favorite 10-year-old, answering the question, what is communion? I I asked Kilo this last week, and he answered by saying that it's something that we do to remember that Jesus died and rose for us and that he's coming back. And I followed up by asking, is Jesus in the bread and the juice? And he gave me a, a kind of sideways, confused look. And, and he said, um, no, uh, they're just symbols that remind us of Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we particularly commune together. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for the, the great wisdom of uh, intelligent, brilliant theologians who came before us and the great wisdom of 10-year-olds who can see the simplicity of what it is that you've given for us to do in remembrance of you. God, we do want to, to think and to dwell on the fact that you, God in the flesh, offered up your life for us, that we might be made right with you. That is an incredible thought, something we could dwell on for, for decades and, and decades and not fully comprehend. God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would uh, you would cleanse us and and help us to put ourselves in a a right state of mind before approaching the Lord's table and uh, remembering your great sacrifice for us. Amen.